Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fiscamole, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. You might notice you are getting this episode late on a Monday evening, and the reason why is that life really just has been beating the shit out of me lately. Um, so we ended up having a, uh, a session recorded on Sunday, yesterday, and I thought it was done. And normally what happens is I record at home, I put the audio file on Dropbox, Mike the sound guy takes it, spruces it up, throws it back in the Dropbox, I upload it to our media host, Blueberry, and we push it out to the world. Every time it comes out, 4 o'clock a.m. Monday morning. That's how we've been doing it for an eternity. Well, when I was trying to save the file, I got what we colloquially refer to as the spinning beach ball of death on my laptop, uh, which if you've, uh, if you've seen it, you know that it is slightly panic-inducing. I had previously had on the 17th, which was, what was that, Tuesday? Whatever day the 17th was, uh, we had a kernel panic, which is the equivalent of the blue screen of death in the Microsoft Windows parlance, basically something that you never want to see. Saturday had another one. And then Sunday was the spinning beach ball, which collectively, when you put that stuff together, basically screams, hey, you're about to have a very serious hardware failure and all of your stuff is going to go bye bye. Uh, So I freaked out because, of course, not only do we record the podcast on my laptop, but my entire law firm is on the laptop. Now, I've got backups for everything. But if I don't have, you know, Microsoft Word, GarageBand, any other utilities that I use, a backup's not going to do me a whole hell of a lot of good unless I can find another machine that still works or prepare to buy a new laptop, which frankly I don't have the money to do because I love these, but they're mighty fucking expensive. Anyhow, so after freaking out today, like last night I stayed up literally all night. I went to bed at 6 o'clock this morning, got up at 10 to take the dog out, went into work, and uh, ended up as soon as I was done. After whining on Twitter, I was incredibly grateful that a guy named Daniel Lane, who is on Twitter, he is at, let me, let me make sure I say his at correctly, because I owe this guy my life, uh, at Gomeral, D-A-L, G-O-M-E-R-A-L, D-A-L. He's a consulting engineer. Follow him if you don't already, because I had asked if anyone had a, a pentalobe screwdriver, which is a special type of screwdriver that only Apple seems to use. They've got Torx screws on the inside. Torx, is, Torx, T-O-R-X, has kind of gone mainstream, but the, the pentalobe stuff is still fairly Apple-specific. And he actually had stuff, was up the street in Apex. So right after work, I ended up going out there and borrowing his toolkit, disassembled the laptop right there on his dining room table, and reseated the hard drive, took some compressed air and blew some dog fur and other mess out of the laptop. And everything seems to be working. I have been using now the uh, the laptop for about 30 minutes. Fairly light use, nothing major like what this GarageBand thing is going to be, so we will see if this happens to work. Uh, but anyhow, long story short, for that entire lead-up, is that the file that we recorded yesterday, only part of it saved. And as much as I would love to go back through the entire thing, I don't have the mental energy to do it. So I might do a separate episode on Thursday that is the outline that I did for Monday, but just re-narrating again <laughs> all the stuff that I just narrated, I, I just don't have the patience to do it. So what we're going to do instead is this is going to be 
a Law 140 that we were not going to originally have. I mentioned last week that this episode will not have a Law 140 as we try and get caught up on the news stories. But because of all of this Kavanaugh stuff that has been going on in the news, I had talked with one of our Law 140 lovers. I'm going to bring her up again in a bit. But she said, hey, do you want to do a Law 140 on evidence? And on Twitter, I said, hell no. There's absolutely no desire for me to do that. But she had a valid point. We've talked about scientific evidence before. But I never really got into the evidence basics, which is kind of necessary for people to understand how all that stuff works. So that's what this new episode is going to be about. I am recording it at home. It will come out at some point tonight after Mike has had a chance to uh, check out the sound stuff. And we'll see how it works. But before we get into that, I want to say first, thank you to everyone who participated in our Twitter fundraiser for the Salvation Army of Durham's Boys and Girls Club back on Friday. Uh, we raised $4,859 in less than 24 hours. Now, to put that in perspective, we raised money for them last year, too, about this time, uh, and only raised 1500 bucks, which was enough to sponsor a child for six months. It cost them $3,000 to sponsor a kid for the year, so we sponsored half a kid for a year, basically. This year, I set a goal of 3000 so we could sponsor a kid for a year, and we almost hit two kids. You know, we're, we're at a kid and a half, so it was a fantastic, absolutely fantastic result, and I appreciate it for everyone who participated and helped make that success happen. Uh, if you have not already done so, please make sure to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account is at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Our website, if you want to leave us a written comment, is Fiskamall.com, F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you want to become one of our financial patrons, you can do that on Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. For $7 a month, you get my eternal uh, love and gratitude and also some occasional bonus episodes. So a couple weeks back, we had a Law 140 on Roy Moore and his lawsuit against Sasha Baron Cohen and how that is all going to play out. Okay, so as far as what this one is going to be about, we're calling this Evidence Basics Part 1, and this is going to be part of a two or three, uh, maybe four, I don't know, series on evidence and how the law of evidence works in court. Because as we're applying it to the political realm, a lot of people say stuff that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it, 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 you know, it's something you pick up from watching Law & Order or watching CSI. So I'm going to give you the real skinny so that as you're debating these folks, you don't make those same mistakes. Because it doesn't really make you look stupid because everyone believes the same thing. It's just the fact that what everyone believes happens to be wrong. All right, so we're going to get into that momentarily. But let's do some factual background. Now, all of you undoubtedly know that our beloved papaya POTUS, Donald Trump, has nominated Brett Kavanaugh to replace Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Uh, that appointment would end up shifting the balance of the court further to the right. So, of course, that's prompted a very pitched battle over Kavanaugh's confirmation, even though Republicans control a 52-seat uh, majority. So there's only so much that Democrats can do. They simply don't have the votes to stop this particular confirmation. Well, he has been accused by a Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, a college psych, uh, psychology professor in California, of attempting to rape her when they were in high school. Now, that, of course, is noteworthy unto itself, but among the, uh, the concerns is not just that it happened, theoretically, uh, which is a separate piece. We're going to talk about that aspect of it, whether it actually happened in a minute, but also that Kavanaugh, under oath, has denied doing any sort of thing to the Congress. So even if uh, this took place and people decide, okay, well, he was 17, so of course that's not automatically disqualifying, the fact that he would have lied about it as an adult would be. So that's kind of the current state of affairs 
Uh, there's been a recent story in the New Yorker that just came out late last night as I was frantically trying to fix whatever was wrong with the laptop that another woman claimed that Kavanaugh stuck his dick in her face when they were in college. Don't have any indication as to whether or not that's a truthful thing or not because in the story, the uh, reporters go to great pains to point out that this woman happened to have been inebriated and didn't actually know for sure that it was him. It just happens that he was in the room and she saw him pull up his pants. And then just uh, earlier today on Monday, before I'm recording this, Kavanaugh has gone on to Fox News to answer questions. And his answers, I'm not going to spoil it for you. I'll have you go listen to it. But essentially, if you go back to our December episode where we uh, talked with Peter Romery of Q Verity Legal and we had captioned it, Spy the Lie, uh, a lot of Kavanaugh's answers are deceptive. So, and again, I don't know what happened, may have, may not. What I do know is that Kavanaugh is not doing himself any favors, at least among people that look for signs of dishonesty. I mean, among the political crowd, they're going to eat this shit right up and say, okay, he's adamantly denied it, that's good enough. But in terms of what he's actually said, compare what he has said to Fox uh, to Harvey Weinstein, Roy Moore, a lot of the other stuff that we talked about with Peter back in December. But the, the crazy part about all of this, of course, is not just that it happened, not just the denials and the countercharges and all that, but that the, the takes on it have been uniformly terrible, regardless of who you talk to. Uh, liberals, for example, have essentially said, okay, the mere fact that the accusation exists means it must be true which to anyone who's ever done any kind of criminal defense work is a terrible take. It freaks us out sometimes, quite frankly, because we've defended people who have been falsely accused. I just mentioned in last week's podcast, the guy in Georgia who was divorcing his wife and then magically her niece accused him of sexual assault. He did a year in prison. She later recanted. Uh, what's that guy's name? Um, football player. Oh, shit. I'm blanking on it. Mike, fill this in if you've got it. Uh, oh, Banks, Brian Banks. This guy was going to do pro football and his entire career got cut short because a woman claimed that he had raped her. His public defender told him he needed to take a plea because he would almost certainly be convicted. And he did. The woman and her mom sued the school where it happened and got a $1.5 million payout. And then she reached out to him on Facebook years later, confessing that she made everything up because she wanted money. You know, so it, it, this stuff happens. It doesn't happen a lot in the grand pantheon of all of the stuff that happens. False reports are not a significant percentage of them. But this notion that just because an accusation exists means it's true is very uh, bizarre. You know, it just absolutely makes no sense. But, you know, so that's on the – I don't want this to be whataboutism because even though that liberal take is obnoxiously bad, when it comes to just sheer grotesque vileness, uh, Republicans really have outdone themselves on this particular issue. And I'm going to give you some quotes because some of this stuff, I'm just like, you, you could just shut the fuck up. You could absolutely let this stuff happen and keep your fucking mouth shut. And everything would be fine. But let's start with the Moscow Muppet himself, Donald Trump. He tweeted out, quote, I have no doubt that if the attack on Dr. Ford was as bad as she says, charges would have been immediately filed with local law enforcement authorities by either her or her loving parents. I ask that she bring those filings forward so that we can learn date, time, and place, exclamation point. The radical left lawyers want the FBI to get involved now, in all caps. Why didn't someone call the FBI 36 years ago? Well, frankly, it's just not how this stuff works, number one. The FBI didn't get involved because it wasn't a federal crime, but the fact that it wasn't reported is super common. 
for sexual assaults, domestic violence. You know, whether it should be common as a as a end goal is one thing, but there's been decades of social science showing that people just don't report this type of stuff. They're embarrassed, they're humiliated, they feel like they're going to be judged. You know, if they've done anything on their own, you know, drank a little bit or wore something that was scantily clad or whatever, they feel like they contributed to it in some way. They just don't report it at all. You saw that last year with the Me Too movement where people said, look, Harvey Weinstein had all the power. He was preying on these people. And if I went against him, my career would be ruined. Or look, Cosby invited me up to his apartment. I felt like I contributed to it. He later drugged me, but you know, I didn't consent to that piece, but I felt bad for putting myself in that scenario. You had all of these women come forward where these guys had totally taken advantage of them. No one had reported it to authorities at the time. It was because it's just not something that's done. You look, for example, at the Catholic Church. Now, I happen to be Catholic. I have dealt with the, uh, the, the news coverage of all these baby rapers among the priesthood, and you have folks who were molested by their priests 30 years ago who were only just now coming forward. It's just the nature of power imbalance. So that is your leader of the free world, who's ignorant as fuck as it is, basically telling everyone who's ever been assaulted it didn't really happen if you didn't file a report. So there's that. You have Senator Dean Heller, who said, quote, uh, we got a little hiccup here with the Kavanaugh nomination. So sexual assault is apparently a hiccup. Uh, you have the Klansman of Iowa, Representative Steve King. He said to the Value Voters Summit, quote, I'm thinking, is there any man in this room that wouldn't be subjected to such an allegation? If that's the new standard, no man will ever qualify for the Supreme Court again. You'll note, Gorsuch was confirmed without any allegations of sexual abuse. Uh, Representative Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, who's already a Congress critter and running for the United States Senate, he said, quote, These are teenagers who evidently were drunk. According to her own statement, they were drunk. Nothing evidently happened in it at all, even by her own accusation. Again, it was supposedly an attempt or something that never went anywhere. Uh, To the Congress critter, attempts are still a crime, buddy you can still definitely be prosecuted for those. Congress critter Ralph Norman out of South Carolina, he was at a debate with his opponent and he started it off, quote, did y'all hear this latest late-breaking news from the Kavanaugh hearings? Ruth Bader Ginsburg came out that she was groped by Abraham Lincoln. Ha ha. Get it? Because she's old. Oh yeah, so not only are we making fun of sexual abuse, we're also making fun of the fact that RBG is old. Got it. Uh, Gina Sosa, who's a Republican congressional candidate earlier this year, as part of a panel that CNN put together with what are supposed to be three unbiased Republican women. All three of them are Republican operatives, by the way. Sosa is one of them who ran for Congress as a Republican. Uh, She says, quote, I mean, we're talking about a 15-year-old girl, which I respect. I'm a woman, I respect, but we're talking about a 17-year-old boy in high school with testosterone running high. Tell me what boy hasn't done this in high school? Uh, Me. I can say definitively, I never threw a girl on the bed, pinned her down, tried to rip her clothes off, put my hand over her mouth while a friend turned up the radio so no one could hear her scream. I have never done that. And I suspect a good number of the people listening to this podcast have never done that either. But we've got more. So let's go with Dennis Prager. Now, this guy's a radio host, and he's the Christian rights media guy. He talks about religion all the time, and he has penned this, this disgusting editorial I'm going to give you some excerpts. You should read the whole thing because it's just, it's so gross. Uh, But he says, quote, it is almost impossible to overstate the damage done to America's moral compass by taking the charges leveled against Judge Brett Kavanaugh seriously. 
It undermines foundational moral principles of any decent society. This is another example of the moral chaos sown by secularism and the left. In any society rooted in Judeo-Christian values, it is understood that people should be morally assessed based on how they behave over the course of their lifetime, early behavior being the least important period in making such an assessment. These religious values taught us that all of us are sinners, and therefore, with the exception of those who have engaged in true evil, we need to be very careful in making moral evaluations of human beings. When my wife was a waitress in her mid-teens, the manager of her restaurant grabbed her breasts and squeezed them on numerous occasions. She told him to buzz off, figured out how to avoid being in places where they were alone, and continued going about her job. That's empowerment. Uh, one, that's pathetic. Uh, that that's you, know, you don't just stick it up and deal with it. We have ways to deal with this stuff for a reason. When predators are allowed to continue being predators, guess what? They keep being predators. That's how this works. But in addition, you notice his talk about how we're supposed to judge people by their entire life and not their young sins. He doesn't seem terribly familiar with our criminal justice system. Hey, Dennis, give us a listen sometime. Uh, Andrew McCarthy. Now, this guy's a fucking hack. I can't stand reading his stuff, but he used to prosecute terrorists. So, of course, he's got a regular column at NRO. Uh, he says, quote, we should note that there is not a police organization in America that would entertain Ford's allegation in light of the lapse of time and the long ago exhaustion of the statute of limitations. Professional investigators understand only too well the inherent unreliability of allegations raised in the manner Ford's have been raised. Now, we're going to note a couple things. One, there actually was no statute of limitations for this particular offense in Maryland. A Maryland lawyer has weighed in on that one. Andrew McCarthy should probably stop practicing law in spots where he's not licensed. But in addition, this is the same guy who on Twitter was praising people who spoke up about being molested by Catholic priests when the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out last month. The exact same scenario. But in that case, he thought these people were heroes. In this case, because the woman is claiming that his future Supreme Court justice did it, uh, she's nuts. And then, I mean, there's so many more bad takes. They really are icky as fuck. I'm going to skip like four or five of these. But I do want to mention one guy who gets the fucking gold star of lunacy is Ed Whelan, who's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. This guy tweeted out a lengthy batshit conspiracy theory thread on Twitter that some random middle school teacher, elementary school teacher, I don't remember what it was, a teacher in Georgia did it, complete with yearbook photos claiming that Kavanaugh and this other guy looked alike. He had fucking Zillow floor plans showing that, you know, the pattern of the layout matched what Ford was saying. It was so damn stupid. And I watched him tweet it out real time as it happened. It's like, Pizzagate fucking squared. It's just so beyond insane. Someone in my mentions archived that entire thread so you can see it. It's just that much. Uh, it's lunatic. It's absolutely lunatic. So with all of that as the backdrop, all of these bad takes, everyone on Twitter offering their own bad take, uh, our longtime supporter, Erica Phillips, who is actually, when I say long time, she was the eighth person to join the Patreon. So we've had, over the course of the year and a half we've had it, we've had 157 people join Patreon. Some folks rotate out. Some folks decided that we're a little too glum. Uh, so out of that 157, Erica was number eight. 
And not only is she a Law 140 lover, a big-time listener of the podcast, she's also a trial attorney. She deals with employment disputes and personal injury stuff, and she's in court doing trials, so she's accustomed to hearing and making the types of arguments that you know normal people would make. Well, she doesn't make them. She's accustomed to hearing them. She makes lawyerly arguments because that's what we do. Uh, and she suggested that I put together a Law 140 on evidence, which is what this is about. So we're going to cover three things for this particular episode. We're going to talk about what evidence is and the, the types of most common categories of it. We're then going to talk about what relevant evidence is, and we're going to go over when it's allowed and when it's excluded. So in the federal rules of evidence, we're covering rules 401, 402, and 403. Now, to do stuff like this, you have to start with the basics. What is evidence? What does the word evidence mean? And for certain terms, lawyers use what is called a Black's Law Dictionary. Currently in its 10th edition, it's been around for, I think, over a century at this point. And it defines evidence as, quote, something, including testimony, documents, and tangible objects, that tends to prove or disprove the existence of an alleged fact, anything presented to the senses and offered to prove the existence or non-existence of a fact, or the collective mass of things, especially testimony and exhibits, presented before a tribunal in a given dispute. Now, lawyers, we categorize evidence in all sorts of ways. You know, we've talked, as I mentioned in a prior podcast, about layperson evidence compared to scientific or expert evidence. Uh, we have positive evidence, which tends to prove a thing happened. We have negative evidence, which tends to prove a thing did not happen. We have relevant and irrelevant. Categorize that stuff in all sorts of different directions. The main one that matters for trial is a distinction between direct evidence versus circumstantial evidence. It's actually something that is explained to juries as part of the pattern jury instructions. So, for example, here is the text of North Carolina's pattern jury instruction, the thing that a judge reads to a jury before they take a case, on what direct evidence is. Quote, direct evidence is the testimony of one who asserts actual knowledge of a fact, such as an eyewitness. And I would add in a parenthetical, photos and videos of an act taking place as it happens are also typically considered direct evidence. Now, contrast that with circumstantial evidence. The PJI says, quote, circumstantial evidence is proof of a chain or group of facts and circumstances pointing to the existence or non-existence of certain facts. So let me give you a pair of examples. The one that a lot of people talk about is the beach, Direct evidence would be you saying, I saw T. Greg walking down the beach on this particular day at this particular time. That would be direct evidence if you saw me doing that. Circumstantial evidence would be, I saw T. Greg's footprints in the sand at the beach on this particular day at this particular time. You don't see me actually there, but my footprints were there. I left something behind that tends to indicate that I was there at some point. I was there no later than the time that you saw it. I was definitely there before. Uh, another example would probably be rain. That's one I use with my law students. So direct evidence would be you saying something to the effect of, I was outside. It was raining. I saw it. I felt the drops hit my face, etc., etc. Circumstantial evidence would be... I was inside, 
but I looked out the window and I saw puddles. I saw people walking into my building with dripping umbrellas. I heard someone say, it's raining outside. Didn't actually observe the rain yourself, but based on those other pieces of facts, tends to show that it was in fact raining. Uh, So the key point why that matters is that people will assume one type of evidence is more important than the other, and that's just not true. From the pattern jury instruction, it continues, quote, the law makes no distinction between the weight to be given to either direct or circumstantial evidence, nor is a greater degree of certainty required of circumstantial evidence than of direct evidence. The law simply requires the party having the burden of proof on a particular issue to satisfy the jury as to that issue by the greater weight of all the evidence in the case. This is for the civil case. In a criminal case, it would be beyond a reasonable doubt. So if you can tell from that definition, that means there are a lot of bad takes that you've seen on Twitter. So for example, when someone says, oh, this is just a he said, she said, that's a bad take because what people say is in fact evidence. Juries weigh that. They weigh what they say. They weigh how they say it. They weigh their demeanor when they're saying it. There are a lot of people in prison based on nothing more than air quotes, he said, she said because they have had the chance to weigh the party's credibility and the things that they have said. So, for example, Dr. Ford's letter to the senator, a lot of people will say, oh, this is just an accusation of sexual assault. And it's not. There is a year that was provided. There was an approximate time. It was in the summer. There was an indication that it was near a country club. There was a certain number of people at the party. There was a certain gender ratio. There was a certain description of the house provided and the specific acts that occurred. There was a lot of evidence in that particular letter that people don't really recognize is still considered evidence. I mentioned on Twitter that if I were a magistrate weighing whether or not probable cause existed to issue a warrant for someone's arrest, there was probable cause in that letter. Now, is that enough to convict? No, but there's definitely enough there to get the process started. Now, flip things around. You also see this take that says, oh, it's only circumstantial at best. Some of the most powerful types of evidence are circumstantial because all of forensics is circumstantial. Fingerprints are circumstantial. DNA is circumstantial. Notes that someone took at the time a thing happened is circumstantial. We often call those a recorded recollection. All of that stuff is circumstantial. So both takes, it's just a he said, she said, or it's circumstantial at best. Both of those takes are garbage because often that's more than enough to put someone away. So let's talk a bit about relevance. What is relevant evidence? Well, they have these tests in the federal rules of evidence. Each state has their own version of it, but you can read the federal version in Federal Rule 401, and I'll give you a link in the show notes. And it says, quote, evidence is relevant if, A, it has any tendency to make a fact more or less probable than it would be without the evidence, and B, the fact is of consequence in determining the action. Now, as lawyers, we tend to shorten that down. We say any tendency to make a material fact more or less likely. So a fact of consequence is considered a material fact. Uh, So, for example, let's say that you have evidence that I like to garden. You know, I've posted a picture on Twitter of my avocado plant in my office. I mentioned buying a trowel and potting soil to you or something like that. That would not be relevant if I were being prosecuted for driving while intoxicated. The fact I like to garden has absolutely no bearing on that particular case. But it might be relevant if I'm being prosecuted for growing weed. 
because in order to grow weed, I need to know how to grow plants. And you can see that I know how to do that from growing the avocado plant. Uh, relevancy can also be conditional. So for example, let's say there's a wet spot on the floor at a restaurant and someone eventually slips and falls and hurts themselves. And someone wants to prove that the restaurant manager knew about that particular puddle because the customer complained to the manager after they had spilled their drink. Now, that's not going to be relevant if there's a lawsuit over whether or not someone preparing the food spit in it. They're sitting here and you're, you want to file a tort suit because someone spit in your food. Whether or not a manager knew about a puddle on the floor doesn't matter. Now, it might be relevant if someone slipped and fell because the management was on notice that the puddle was there and didn't take steps to correct it. But in addition to proving that someone mentioned the puddle, you would also have to prove that the manager heard the statement. So if the statement was made, but the manager was upstairs, it wouldn't be relevant because that's a conditional relevancy issue. You have to prove both that the evidence happened. So in this case, someone complaining about the puddle and the person that it was directed to actually received it. In this case, the manager heard what was being said. There's lots of other hypotheticals, but that's the one I'm going to go with for now. So remember, got to keep a distinction between relevant and irrelevant evidence, which is going to hinge on what type of case is being fought over. And that relevancy can also be conditional, meaning it would be relevant if you can also prove other facts alongside it. So what is admissible? What does it mean to have admissible evidence? Well, that's in Rule 402, and the baseline is that everything comes in. That's how we start. Rule 402 says, quote, relevant evidence is admissible unless any of the following provide otherwise, the United States Constitution, a federal statute, these rules, or other rules prescribed by the Supreme Court. Irrelevant evidence is not admissible. So that is a, a key background of how the evidentiary foundation was set up. There's a guy named James Bradley Thayer, uh, who is a legal theorist. He wrote a lot of stuff in the 1800s. He went to Harvard. Uh, as part of how Harvard got their reputation for being such a great law school is that a lot of the foundations of the law going back to the 17 and 1800s were done by Harvard students and professors. Well, in 1898... Thayer wrote a preliminary treatise on evidence, and one of the things he says is that the provisions that all relevant evidence is admissible, that's your baseline, and then you set out these certain exceptions, and that evidence is not relevant, is not admissible. Those things were, quote, a presupposition involved in the very conception of a rational system of evidence. What do you think about it makes sense. If it's relevant, it comes in unless there's some basis to keep it out because we've decided there's an appropriate policy reason to do so. Which, of course, raises the next question. What gets excluded? Now, there are a lot of different rules of exclusion. Some of them are within the rules of evidence. Some are within other statutes. Some are within the Constitution. You know, for example, we talk about your Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. If you make an incriminating statement and it fits certain criteria, it can be excluded, even though that would definitely be relevant. Well, under Rule 403, that says, quote, the court may exclude relevant evidence if its probative value is substantially outweighed by a danger of one or more of the following, unfair prejudice, confusing the issues, misleading the jury, undue delay, wasting time, or needlessly presenting cumulative evidence. 
Now, what does that mean in practice? What does it mean for relevant evidence to have probative value that is substantially outweighed by unfair prejudice, for example? And the answer to that question is it really means whatever the trial judge decides it means. Because when you're dealing with a trial, one of the things as a trial lawyer you're always keeping an eye out for is what's called preserving the record. So that if something happens, and God forbid you lose, you have a well-documented narration of what happened so that an appellate lawyer can file an appeal and hopefully fix whatever took place. When you're dealing with things on appeal, there are different standards of review that the appellate judges provide. So you have burdens of proof at the trial level. At the appellate level, it's typically standards of review. So for example, whenever a judge makes a ruling about what the law means, an appellate judge will apply what is called de novo review. There's no deference given to the trial court. The appellate court looks at everything from scratch because this is all just deciding the meaning of the law. On the other extreme, you have what is called clearly erroneous. That is the standard used for a court's determination of what are called findings of fact because the trial court hears the evidence so they're able to decide what the facts are or the jury can decide what the facts are. And the appellate court is going to be very hesitant to overturn that. So under the clearly erroneous standard, an appellate court is not going to overrule a district court unless there's, quote, a definite and firm conviction that a mistake has been committed. If the district court's account of the evidence is plausible in light of the entire record, the Court of Appeals may not reverse even if it would have weighed that evidence differently. So those are the two extremes. You have clearly erroneous on the highly deferential to the trial court side. You have de novo, which is not deferential at all. Most discovery-related rulings, objections and such that get made during trial, fall under a middle ground called the abuse of discretion standard. So an abuse of discretion is considered plain error and, quote, a judgment that is clearly against the logic and effect of the facts as are found. So under an abuse of discretion standard, a reviewing court, quote, cannot reverse absent a definite and firm conviction that the district court committed a clear error of judgment in the conclusion it reached upon a weighing of relevant factors. Now, that's all gobbledygook legalese. The gist of it is if a judge makes a decision on an objection about evidence that is more or less rational, it's not totally crazy. Uh, the appellate court is going to uphold it. So that's why it's very important that trial court judges are actually experienced in having dealt with trials so they can anticipate and understand the evidentiary rulings they're going to have to make. Uh, So what you see oftentimes is that those types of objections are usually resolved only at the district court. They rarely get appealed. When they do get appealed, they're mostly handled by the circuit courts of appeals. They rarely ever make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, So it does happen occasionally, and I'm going to give you one particular case to talk about how the Supreme Court has looked at this stuff, but that's a key thing to keep in mind as we go through not just this particular Law 140, but the future ones, is that a lot of uh, disputes at trial about the admission of evidence are going to end with however the district court judge, the one presiding over the trial, chooses to rule on them. Uh, Now, SCOTUS decisions, Supreme Court decisions on these particular rules do exist, but they're actually fairly infrequent. If you look at the uh, Courts of Appeals decisions, you see them more regularly. The most recent one that I could find 
is a case called Sprint United Management Company versus Mendelssohn, and it was from 2008. It's a uh, an ADEA case, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, I think. Don't quote me on that. I don't do that type of litigation, but I know it's an age discrimination case, and the decision was unanimous, and it was written by Justice Thomas, and he actually provided a helpful summary at the start of the opinion. He says, quote, In this age discrimination case, the district court excluded testimony by non-parties alleging discrimination at the hands of supervisors of the defendant company who played no role in the adverse employment decision challenged by the plaintiff. The Court of Appeals, having concluded that the district court improperly applied a per se rule excluding the evidence, engaged in its own analysis of the relevant factors under Federal Rules of Evidence 401 and 403, and remanded with instructions to admit the challenged testimony. We granted certiorari on the question whether the Federal Rules of Evidence required admission of the testimony. We conclude that such evidence is neither per se admissible nor per se inadmissible. Because it is not entirely clear whether the district court applied a per se rule, we vacate the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand for the district court to conduct the relevant inquiry under the appropriate standard. Basically, they're telling the trial judge to go through and explain why he ruled the way he ruled so that they can decide whether or not to uphold it under the abuse of discretion standard. As the court explains how that all works, they continue further on down in the opinion, quote, in deference to a district court's familiarity with the details of the case and its greater experience in evidentiary matters, courts of appeals afford broad discretion to a district court's evidentiary findings. This court has acknowledged a district court has accorded a wide discretion in determining the admissibility of evidence under the federal rules. Assessing the probative value of the proffered evidence and weighing any factors counseling against admissibility is a matter first for the district court's sound judgment under Rules 401 and 403. This is particularly true with respect to Rule 403 since it requires an on-the-spot balancing of probative value and prejudice, potentially to exclude as unduly prejudicial some evidence that already has been found to be factually relevant. Under this deferential standard, courts of appeals uphold Rule 403 rulings unless the district court has abused its discretion. Here, however, the Court of Appeals did not accord the district court the deference we have described as the hallmark of abuse of discretion review. Relevance and prejudice under Rules 401 and 403 are determined in the context of the facts and arguments in a particular case, and thus are generally not amenable to broad per se rules. See, for example, the Advisory Committee's note on the Federal Rules of Evidence at 401, and the advisory committee, these are the people that actually put together the federal rules that the Supreme Court then signs off on. Uh, and they noted as part of the commentary on Rule 401, quote, relevancy is not an inherent characteristic of any item of evidence. It exists only as a relation between an item of evidence and a matter properly provable in the case. So that's the gist of it. Evidence has to be relevant which means it's tied to a particular case. Usually what that means is it's relevant if it is proving an element of the case or it's used to attack someone's credibility or it's providing basic background information in terms of what happened. Uh, it's admissible if it's relevant unless there's some reason for it to be excluded. So, for example, the most common thing you see in a 403 ruling where the probative value is substantially outweighed by the potential for prejudice 
uh, is, for example, acts of violence, where something is just egregiously violent, and there's a concern that if the jury sees how violent it is, they will make a decision based purely on emotion, not on the fact of what actually happened. Uh, the case that I just mentioned, the Sprint case, if you are attacking uh, someone else who had no particular role in what's being decided, but that person is perceived as being squirrely or unpleasant, uh, and you end up saying, okay, well, this other person is a terrible person and we hate them, therefore let's punish the person directly in front of us, uh, that type of stuff tends to be excluded as well. But that's the basic framework of how it's set up. Relevant evidence is considered to be admissible unless there's some other basis for it to be excluded. So in the next segment that we do on this, we're going to talk about a key piece of evidence where that tends to come up and the basis for admitting it or excluding it. It is called hearsay. It is a hot mess. I could do an entire podcast just on it. I'm going to try and work it into a future episode, but just know that's where we're heading with this. And then later on, we're going to talk about character evidence, rule 404B and some of that other stuff. Uh, so that's going to be it for this special, I'm not calling it special because it's like your normal Monday episode, but since it's so late, uh, your Law 140 on the introduction to the rules of evidence. I uh, hope you liked it. If you did, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you happen to get your podcast. And again, a special thank you to Daniel Lane, who really saved my bacon with this laptop because, by golly, I was freaking out about these kernel panics. And I've now recorded this entire 40-something-minute episode and haven't had a single one despite saving the file multiple times. So I think the problem has been resolved. So folks, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you for listening. We're hopefully going to have a special edition on Thursday once I work up the willpower to re-narrate all of the criminal justice fuckery. If that doesn't happen, which frankly at this point I don't know, uh, we'll definitely have another episode on Monday. So thank you for listening. Have a great week. Talk to you soon.